just remembering how when, when Jesus was raised from the dead on, and began to appear to a number of his disciples, um, you may well know the story of how he appeared to Thomas, and Thomas um, was filled with doubt because he'd seen Christ uh, dead upon the cross a few days before, and he says, unless I put my hand in the hole in his side where the spear went, unless I see the marks on his hands, I won't believe. Of course, when Christ appears to Thomas, he shows him the scars and he invites him to, to inspect the wounds of his, his flesh, which has been so brutally uh, damaged by his death upon the cross, but which is now alive again. And Thomas, in that moment, experiences a profound transformation instantaneously. And he falls down, it says, and worships, and he says, my Lord and my God. There's this kind of exclamation of praise and in a very sudden transformation. It seems that prior to that, he's, he's been filled with uncertainty. He loves Jesus, there's no question of that. But does Jesus have that all-controlling power on Thomas's life up to that point in which Thomas can say without a doubt, yes, whatever you say is true? I don't think so. But then when he sees for himself, a transformation takes place. He falls on his face and he says, my Lord and my God. And friends, that is the picture of what it means to to be a Christian. It's this Christ obsession where he's gone from being someone who you love and admire or are interested in to being this one that you have to fall on your face before and you have to say, my Lord and my God. You offer him yourself, but most of all, you offer him your love and you come with desire. And I want us to pray together now along those lines and ask the Lord to um, stir within our hearts that kind of passion and affection for Him. Lord, we thank You that You haven't just given us a doctrine, You haven't just given us a way of life, but that You gave us a person, You gave us Your Son, You gave us the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the center of the Christian faith is not a set of beliefs necessarily or a set of practices, but the center of our faith is this man, this totally unique man, Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, and that to grow in our faith is to grow in our obsession with, our adoration of, our focus upon, our listening to, our imitation of, and our trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask you, Lord, that you will bring us afresh to that place of surrender before Jesus today, Just like Thomas experienced where he said, my Lord and my God. And he could not do anything except fall on his face. Lord, we ask that you will pull down doubts. That you'll pull down all grumbling and questioning. That you'll pull down all fear. That you will eradicate, Lord, our battles with temptation. And in its place, Lord, you'll bring about this obsession with the Lord Jesus Christ. This love for your Son. We ask for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us all, wherever we are in each and every home. We ask, Lord, that you will do what I cannot, what my words cannot, that you will accomplish what only the work of God can accomplish, to bring our hearts afresh in praise and adoration to Jesus. And for those who are not yet believers, who have not yet come to a place where they can say, I I, want to follow Christ, may they come to that place today. We thank you that you have given us this totally priceless gift in giving us Jesus as our Savior. We love you. We worship you, Lord. Amen. Amen. 
Well, I want to invite you to open up um, a Bible if you have one in front of you or to scroll down uh, beneath the video and read the text of the passage that we're going to be considering today. I'm going to read to you just a few verses from the Gospel of Mark and the 12th chapter. I want to read to you um, some of Christ's denunciations actually of those who were called the scribes in their day. And we're going to read uh, Mark 12 verse 35 to 40. And it says this. It says that, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? And of course, he's speaking there of the tradition, the understanding that the Messiah, the Christ, would be descended from the line of David, which of course Jesus is. It says, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Here he's quoting from the 110th Psalm, Psalm which David himself wrote. In verse 37, David himself calls him, the Messiah, Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Now, if you've been tracking with us to this point, you'll know, and I'll remind those of you, or bring to your mind what's going on here if you don't know the context, this is the last week of Jesus' life on earth before he's crucified. And prior to that, his years of ministry have been mainly based in the countryside. But this last week of his ministry and his life has been focused in the city of Jerusalem. And there he finds himself in the hornet's nest with the religious authorities of the day who are no great fans, for the most part, no great fans of Jesus. And so he finds himself in a sequence of conversations during this week in which um, the various groupings of religious authorities, these men who are opposed to him, come and ask him questions. And they come and sort of challenge him and they they probe him and they try and put him on the spot and trick him and trap him. And uh, he's been through a number of these conversations up to this point. And it's felt like every time they kind of sent their best fighters into the ring. And we're in, we've been through Rocky 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 and 6 now. And each time the underdog, which is Jesus, this kind of heavyweight, comes out triumphant in these conversations, these arguments that he's had with these, um, these amazing intellects and these prominent men of the day. And, uh, and, and so all of that's come to an end. It tells us at the end of the last passage that after that, no one dared to ask him any qu- more questions. No one was prepared to jump into the ring with Jesus anymore because whatever they threw at him, he threw back with twice as much force. And now, now something t- changes. Here, the dynamic shifts. Prior to this, Jesus has been very much on the defensive, hasn't he? With the questions that have been coming at him, which is often the stance that we as Christians feel. We're mainly on the defensive. We, we offer what is called an apologetic or a defense of the faith because people want to put us, they want to ask us questions, difficult questions, and we find ourselves uh, our back against the wall frequently, having to kind of parlay the various attacks that come to us. But here there's a change in dynamic. Jesus now goes on the offensive. And uh, this is also a stance which Christians have to take from time to time, where they are able to kind of point out the flaws and problems in the worldview that is, that is outside of Christ, that isn't Christian. And this is what Jesus does here. And he particularly lays in to a, a specific group who are called the scribes. Now, 
the scribes, of course, are the most educated men of the day. They are um, some of the most powerful men within the Jewish uh, nation and culture. And they are the men who know the Old Testament scriptures back to front and whose day job is not only to copy it meticulously by hand, the Hebrew scriptures, but also to understand and then teach those scriptures to the common people. And he goes against them who are the most difficult opponents he would be up against. And why is it that he targets them? Which he does. Verse 35, how can the scribes say? He's he's putting doubt on whether they've really read their Bibles properly. Verse 38, beware of the scribes, he says. What is he doing here? Why is he going on the offensive? And I think we need to just rule out a few things, first of all, just to say that this doesn't have anything to do with him trying to maybe preserve his life Um, in the final days before he's crucified. He's not trying to kind of um, win favor and and, 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 uh, defeat his enemies in that way. Nor is he trying to kind of get, do some kind of one-upmanship where he is is sort of getting, you know, the the joy of beating his opponents and preserving his own dignity. Because on the contrary, what we've seen from Jesus is that when he meets somebody who is genuinely open, there's a mutual respect. In the last story, he engaged with a scribe and said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So Jesus doesn't have any problem with them as individuals if their hearts and minds are open to truth. And so he's not interested in just you know, engaging in silly arguments just for one-upmanship's sake or anything of the kind. And he's certainly not envious of them or of their power and influence because as you see, it says the throng heard him gladly. Jesus has popularity. He's beaten them in every round of argumentation they've engaged in. So why is he doing this? Why is it that when they're down, he, he goes in for a killer blow, as it were? And the reason I, I think is this. We can find it in other passages in the Gospels. That his, his greatest concern about these men was the poisonous influence and control that they exerted over the, all the common people, the ordinary Jews. And we see this, for example, in Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would, who would uh, enter to go in. So his problem is not merely that these men um, have wrong beliefs and wrong understandings and wrong ways of reading scripture. His problem is that they had misled all the, the ordinary Jewish people and actually led them away from God rather than toward him. And Luke puts it in a slightly different way. He says, Woe to you lawyers, Jesus says, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. So let me explain it to you like this. You think about the role of the scribes and the role that they exercised within the society at the time. Their role was to be the arbiters of what was true. They were to be the men who who sanctioned true doctrine, true belief. And so in a sense, because of their position within that religious society, they were the cultural gatekeepers. If they gave something the seal of approval, the whole nation was permitted to believe it. If they said something is out of bounds or wrong, then then the whole nation was, was denied or forbidden from believing it. They exercised an immense power and place of privilege and influence over the common people. And this is why when Jesus is attacking, he doesn't attack common people who don't believe in him. He might chastise them for their lack of faith, but he goes for the scribes because he says, you are responsible. Now, it seems to me that this 
um, is, is a situation that we can, we can certainly identify with and which has immense relevance for the day in which we live. And I say that because even if, okay, it's not the case that religious leaders necessarily exercise that kind of influence in our day and age. No one's really listening to bishops or um, they, they're, usually a, 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 um, they're usually characters of mockery, aren't they? On the contrary, though, we, have, we do have these cultural gatekeepers within our society. You think about the people who exercise this kind of influence, who are the arbiters of truth, and they tend to be um, academics or scientists or celebrities very often as well. And, you know, even if it sticks in my craw to say the word, influencers, people who are kind of these uh, self-appointed influencers upon social media, where they exercise this unbelievable sway over the opinions of many. And so even if we don't have the scribes in our day and age, what we do have are all these groupings of people whose opinions count more than others and who exercise this great influence. And the reason why I'm drawing this comparison is because our situation is very similar. Just as in Jesus' day, these cultural gatekeepers were actually trying to bar people from true belief, so also in our day, the dominant sense in a secular nation like ours is that the cultural gatekeepers are very much set against the Christian faith, very much opposed to it, and frequently treat um, belief in Christ as a, as a cause for mockery and derision. And so we find ourselves in a very interesting situation where if we experience doubt on account of the dominant voices that we hear in the world around us, you know, this scientist's scorns and mocks Christian belief on this area, or this academic believes that Christians are misguided or backward or bigoted, or if this celebrity says, no, no, we need, we need to move away from those beliefs to these kinds of things. If those voices bear an influence upon us, if they cause us to feel doubt, if they cause us to feel isolated or to feel as though Christian belief is somehow weird or unlikely or perhaps not true because these prominent people don't believe it, then we find ourselves in the same situation to which Jesus was speaking here. And it seems to me that his critiques of these men are just as applicable today. And so I'm speaking to you partly if you're a Christian, you find yourself feeling isolated. You think, well, if all these prominent people don't believe what I believe, how can I really, um, really believe this this stuff, this, this faith? Or if you're a seeker, a spiritual seeker, and the thing that really troubles you is that there are not more people, prominent people, who believe these things, and I'm speaking to you. Now, what Jesus does here is he shows us that these men, these cultural gatekeepers, these influential voices, are not to be trusted. That they, there's a myth around them being objective arbiters of truth because of the corruptions that influence people that are in these places of prominence, the very same corruptions that apply today. And I want to show you what they are. And I think there are three things which Jesus puts his finger on here. Let's just walk our way through this passage and understand them. The first thing he puts his finger on is that they are corrupted by intellectual dishonesty and spiritual blindness. And he does this by showing them that their very job was to read the Hebrew Scriptures to understand and teach it, and yet they'd failed to read them carefully. He asks them in verse 35, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? 
Now, just to explain this to you, what's going on here is Jesus is quoting from a very famous psalm, a psalm which these scribes would have read umpteen times and, in fact, copied out by hand countless times. And what he's saying is you haven't even read it properly. The psalm clearly shows that the Messiah, the son of David, the descendant of David, would be divine because David, writing prophetically, has to call his, his son this Messiah, he has to call him by the divine name. He has to call him Lord. He has to bow in submission to the Messiah. And Jesus doesn't make it explicit, of course, that he's saying, well, I'm divine. But he is, in fact, inferring that very powerfully and very strongly. And what he's showing is that this, that even intellectuals, even very intelligent people, people who have given their lives to the pursuit of knowledge and, and on the face of it seem to be in pursuit of truth, can be blinded by the things that are right in front of their eyes. They may not see or perceive truth clearly. And this seems to me to be a very, very important thing to understand and believe. It's a diagnosis which the scriptures give in various places, speaking about us, speaking about every human That our beliefs, that we are not objective creatures, we are not perfectly pure, reasonable or rational creatures capable of perceiving truth in an objective way. Rather, we are moral creatures, sinful creatures, creatures whose eyes are clouded and blinded by our own prejudices and biases so that we do not see things as they really are, so that we are incapable of fully grasping the truth as it is and so that the things that we believe and teach are often flawed and fractured and broken by all our prejudices. And this is incredibly important within the Christian worldview because it goes most of the way to explaining why it is that intelligent, rational people can dismiss out of hand things that are self-evidently true, and particularly the truth about God, that he is there, that he is our creator. And we see this working its way into our own culture you, see, you think about, for example, the fact that, you know, I, ha- I have massive respect for scientific endeavor, huge respect for scientific endeavor. But it seems to me that scientists are far, far, fall, they fall far short of any real ability to see truth objectively. And one of the most obvious ways in which that's true is their inability to um, admit the fact that life could not have spontaneously generated by chance. It defies the laws of mathematics and, in fact, the laws of the universe that this could have just happened by chance. And yet people believe it without any evidence, without any proof in a laboratory, without any ability to demonstrate that this is a true belief. They believe it by a sheer act of faith and blind will and so commit themselves to a worldview in which they've excluded the notion of God and believe that this, this universe is self-contained, that there is nothing but the material, that we are in a naturalist universe. And I, I, I ask myself the question, how is it that intelligent people cannot see that life is miracle? And the answer, of course, is this spiritual blindness just because you're smart just because you're influential does not mean you're right same goes of course for all the moral talk that we see in our world we have many great minds who are philosophers and some who are journalists and who write passionately about various moral causes but who also claim to be atheistic One of the great flaws and the great problem of atheism, and it's the one that C.S. Lewis picked up on in his book, Mere Christianity, is that without God, we have no moral lawgiver. Without a moral lawgiver, we can't really believe in an objective moral law. All we have is each person's moral preferences. And that's not to say that we are naturally immoral beings. We're not. We're all moral. But it's to say that there's nothing binding over us. 
that what you think is true and right and good is not necessarily what I think is true and right and good, and who's to say who is true? C.S. Lewis just says that all we're left with is mere preferences. You think, how is it that intelligent people cannot see that if they've denied God, there is no force to their moral language and they use words like should and should not and this is right and this is wrong and this is good and this is bad. All of it is merely empty words, mere personal preferences if you take God out of the picture. And the answer that the scriptures give us and which Jesus is showing us here is that merely because you're smart, merely because you're intellectual, merely because you're knowledgeable does not mean that you can necessarily see the truth. And I think we could go on all day listening various examples that fit within these kinds of categories, how otherwise intelligent people in our day and age believe things which are actually absurd, which are actually go against reason. Why? Because we are moral creatures. And Jesus is showing that even the best minds can miss the truth. And this is something which the Bible, as I said, explains in various places and diagnoses as one of our fundamental problems as humans. I think, for example, about this passage in Romans chapter 1, where Paul says that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You think about one of the most hairy issues of our day and age which is so in the, in the media right now, is this great question around whether your biology determines your nature, and particularly whether you're male or female. It seems to me there's nothing more fundamental to our understanding of ourselves and recognizing that our bo- biology, our bodies, is who we are. And yet somehow these two things have been divorced, and we've said, no, no, the real you is something inside you, something amorphous, something that, is, that it has nothing to do with your body. Your body is just an accident. You think, how is it that we arrive at this level of irrationality? How is it that we arrive at this way of thinking in which the truth no longer matters and words no longer matter so that words can be redefined, so that male can be female and female can be male and we can simply switch the name tags? The answer is that humans are moral creatures and not just rational creatures. We believe what we want to believe and if you don't believe it, we'll bully you until you believe it. And it seems to me that unless you grasp this, you cannot even begin to grasp why it is that people are hostile to God and opposed to the truth and why they do not believe in Jesus Christ. This is the point that he's putting his finger on here. He's saying these scribes, they are spiritually blind. And we have the same disease at work in our culture today. This intellectual dishonesty and blindness. Let me show you a second thing he points to. He points to the corruption of their thinking because of the love of the praise of man. And this comes through in the next couple of verses where he says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. Have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts. Now what he's describing here is the the situation for these particular men. These were privileged men. They wore these beautiful, gleaming white prayer shawls with blue tassels on the end that drew attention to them as they walked through the market. When, people, when they walked through the market, unless you were a trader, everyone else had to stand and greet them as they walked through as a matter of respect, as a matter of honor given to these particular men, these scribes. 
and there were reserved in the synagogues these seats at the front on the dais where they could sit facing the congregation or at the walls where they would have these places of prominence. And you see all the ways in which these men experience privilege. They go to a dinner party, the host ushers them to the best seat at the table because of their role, because of their function, because they're a scribe. And so they walk through life and they waltz through life enjoying soaking up, lapping up the admiration of people. And here's the problem. What we have here is a conflict of interest. And the conflict of interest is this, that the love of admiration and the love of the praise of people is very often opposed to the role of being a truth speaker. And you can see how these two things come into conflict. If your role in life is to pursue truth and to speak truth, which was the fundamental calling of a scribe, you can see how you'll be tempted to bend your words and change the truth or to manipulate it in such a way so as not to offend the people who give you all this praise and this admiration and this love. And this is a dynamic that we're seeing going on all the time in the Bible and certainly in our day and age. But There's a description of this in John chapter 12, where it says that many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And then he diagnoses it like this. John says, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In other words, the human heart is very easily influenced by the love of praise, the love of admiration, that it has a corrupting influence on our minds and our imaginations and our perception of what is true. That if we, if we think that a certain point of view or a certain opinion will lose us friends, even if it's true, we'll discard it and call it not true. And that we'll believe falsehoods provided that those falsehoods get us popularity. Now again, I see this as a huge problem in our day and age. You think about how the fact is that in our world, the only way ahead in many, many spheres is to toe the line, not believe things that are considered too extreme, not believe things that are considered too radical or fundamentalist or worthy of mockery or derision, because if you do, your career will run to a full stop. You think about if you are a Christian, there are certain things that you cannot and must not say in your place of work, things that you believe in your heart, but which you must not say, because if you say them, you'll be fired that very day. It seems to me that negative consequences, therefore, of believing things which are unapproved, actually then shapes the whole conversation. The fear of being cancelled, the fear of being ignored, of being sidelined, is a powerful thing that not only affects us in our day-to-day lives, but of course affects those who who are in prominent places, powerful voices. And Jesus is saying, this is the corruption This is the reason why you can't trust the scribes. They're too much in this conflict of interest in which they enjoy the praise that comes from man. So really you can't trust the word that comes out of their lips. They're not reliable. They won't tell you the truth. It seems to me that this is one of the fundamental problems in the world at large. That there are very few people who have the courage of their convictions to stand up on what they say and say what they truly believe is, is right. And if they do say it, they're very quickly excluded by, by, the, uh, by the efforts of others to put them outside and to cancel them. And it seems to me that this is a great problem. It means that our world is not set up to pursue truth, but is set up to perpetuate lies. 
Our world is, is, is led by this love of the praise that comes from man. And it means that our quest for truth is curtailed and killed in preference for a love for the praise of man. And he shows a third thing, a third corruption which has come in with these men. Not only are they intellectually blind and spiritually blinded, not only do they love, com- uh, love the praise of man too much so that it's corrupted their calling, but he says also that they love privilege and they love wealth and they love comfort. And this also has corrupted their calling. He describes it in this way. He says that they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses. Now, we don't know exactly how this was taking place at the time, but clearly Jesus' audience must have known what he was referring to. The fact that these scribes were being enriched by their calling in their place of prominence in in society. Meanwhile, widows who had no means of income or support because their husbands had died and there was no social welfare system, the widows were expected to contribute to the welfare and to give to these scribes and support them. And so he says, you devour their houses while you walk around enjoying all these privileges. And what Jesus is saying here, once more, is he's saying this, that there is a conflict here, which means you should question everything that these men say. The conflict is that they are they're in a position of comfort and wealth and privilege which they would not give up for the sake of speaking truth. And so you can't trust a word that they say. There was a time in our country where this used to be true of religious leaders. I think back in the Victorian era and, and perhaps earlier than that as well, It was certainly true that if you wanted a position in society, if you wanted a guaranteed means of income, if you wanted to live in a nice house, one way of ensuring all of these things and providing for your family and having a voice in society was to become a minister within a a prominent denomination, particularly within the Anglican church. And so people would put their sons into, into training, into ministry, and make sure that their son gets ordained and becomes a vicar because that was a noble and worthy calling, regardless of whether their son has any spiritual life in him. And people would choose this course, not because it's their vocation, but because it's a smart career choice. And what was the result of all that? It was spiritual death in the pulpits. It was spiritual death in churches, and it was, eventual that it was eventually inevitable that the churches, therefore, themselves would begin to die and people would fall away from the Christian faith. And you see how there's this conflict, isn't there? That as long as, as long as there are comforts and wealth and privileges, that lies in conflict with this, this calling to be a speaker of truth, to be a prophet. And Jesus is saying, this is why you can't listen to these men. And it seems to me that once more, this is one of the great problems that we have in our day and age. If a calling to be a prophet is to speak the truth regardless of what happens to you and whether you lose your income and whether you are sidelined and whether people will believe you or not, that's the calling of the prophet. It seems to me that in our day and age, people who want influence seek book deals, they seek wealth, they seek influence. And all these things tend to militate against being a trustworthy voice on any issue. Which is why whenever the latest controversy uh, blows up in our world, you see the celebrities licking their fingers and feeling which way the wind is blowing and then jumping on that latest cause as though they're kind of some kind of self-righteous guardians of the truth. And of course, all of this is a, is a cause for mockery. All of this are things that we should laugh at and regard with as just pure silliness. And this is what Jesus says to his people. He says to his people, to Christians, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
He's saying there's something very honorable about believing things which others consider disgusting and wrong. If, in fact, you believe them in your conscience and if they are true. There's something honorable about holding to the truth, even if the truth has become deeply, deeply unpopular. And he says, in many ways, that is the calling of the Christian. The calling of the Christian is to stand by your convictions and to believe things which are derided and which are viewed with nothing but scorn. Now, I want, to, I want to step back and tell you why I think this matters to us. We live in a, in a secular world where great scorn is being poured upon Christian faith. And whatever your situation, this is affecting you. If you're a Christian already, you know that this affects you. It, affects, it causes doubts to, to, to take root in your heart. It causes you to question the things that you believe because the things you believe are regarded as so crazy. But also, if you're not a Christian, if you're someone who's spiritually searching, you say, there are aspects of the Christian faith which appeal to me. It has the ring of truth. But at the same time, I know that to cross that line and to believe these things is to subject myself to mockery, to subject myself to rejection, to put myself in a position where I will be standing against the crowd and against the current and where I'll be regarded as someone who's actually embraced lunacy and craziness. And I want to ask you, what is Jesus teaching us here? It seems clear to me that there's a negative way and a positive way of looking at this. The negative way is to say, friends, the way our world is set up, the way humans function and the way society works, it is is set up not to perpetuate truth, but to produce belief in lies and fictions. And that ought to be in our minds very, very strongly as we consider what is acceptable belief in our day and age. There was a time when the internet was invented and began to grow in its popularity. And you think particularly about the period in the mid-90s when it was becoming more ubiquitous. When there were various utopians who thought this will democratize things. This will enable all of us to have a voice. So that the, the most powerful people will no longer be the only ones who have a voice. But it seems to me that the very opposite has happened because of the way things are designed, because of the mechanisms of the way the conversation takes place in our world. Very few people have great influence and their voices are quickly shut down if they're viewed as being outside or beyond the pale. And so Jesus is giving us the tools to be skeptical. He's saying, look around you and see. The people who you think you ought to be listening to, you shouldn't listen to. Because there's intellectual dishonesty. Because there's corruption that comes through the love of the praise of man. Because they want popularity more than they want to speak truth. And because there's corruption that comes through the love of wealth and comfort. For as long as someone's benefiting from their role as a so-called speaker, cultural influencer, then you can't trust the word that comes out of their mouth. That's the negative way of looking at it. But I also think there's a positive way we can look at it. And it's like this. What we need in this day and age, of course, is a reliable guide. We need to be able to look to someone and listen to someone who stands outside of these criticisms and who is not guilty of them. Someone who will speak the truth to us even if it's unpopular, even if it means that they get killed for it. When Jesus was preaching from place to place, one of the dynamics you occasionally see within the Gospels is that he would gather great crowds around him. And people were fascinated by what was going on. They were fascinated by the miracles. They were fascinated by his forcefulness and the authority with which he spoke. But whenever Jesus had great crowds around him, he never changed his tone or his message in order to please them and keep the movement going. On the contrary, 
He frequently spoke up with harsh truth-telling in such a way that people abandoned him en masse. And there's a beautiful moment at the end of John chapter 6 where this has just taken place. And Jesus turns and he says that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus turned to the 12 and said, do you want to go away as well? His closest disciples, he's so unsure about whether uh, they will want to follow him because everyone else has abandoned him. And Peter says words which I think should ring in our minds and in our hearts. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and I've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? What Peter is saying is that when you have excluded every other voice, every other option, you can see that every other person in society is afflicted by the kinds of corruptions which Jesus has described. Then you can honestly say to yourself, I can't go anywhere else. But at that point, you must reconsider Jesus and think about his voice and his power and his influence in your life. To whom shall we go, Peter says? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I want to remind you, friends, of why you should have confidence. That when you listen to Jesus, you're listening to somebody who speaks truth. And you think about the three criticisms that he, he, he set against these scribes. And how each of them is not true of him. Think of the first one. That it, whereas they were intellectually honest and spiritually blind, what we discover about Jesus is that there is this perfect intellectual honesty and truth in the way he speaks. Now anyone who's read the Gospels will see it, it, it leaps off the page. That his words are pure words. That his words have weight. That he speaks the truth regardless of the impact of whether people will like him or not. Jesus says this about himself in John chapter 8. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friends, this is why we put so much focus upon and emphasis upon listening to Jesus alone above every other voice, that he is the arbiter of truth, the sole arbiter of truth, because to, be, to listen to him is to find yourself in the light rather than the dark and the murkiness of uncertainty and conflict of heart. He says a little bit later in John chapter 14, shortly before his death actually, he says these words, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to, to the Father except through me. And this is certainly my deepest conviction. It's not just that Jesus speaks the truth. He does. But it's in fact that he is the truth. That he is the embodiment of the truth. The way the Gospels describe him becoming man and taking on flesh is that they describe him as the incarnation of God, as truth taking on flesh, as the Logos, the Word of God, God's revelation in human form. This is why we listen to Christ above all others. If we don't have Jesus, then all we have is the opinions of men. And men's opinions are not to be trusted because they are so subject to the corruptions that we've been describing. If we don't have Christ, then we're just we're locked into a dark room and one person's voice is just as good as another person's voice. But when Christ came into the world, light was brought into the room. And this is why, what it means to be a Christian. You're saying, even if all other voices cannot be trusted completely, there is one voice which I know speaks true words, which embodies true revelation. 
This is why we need the Bible. And this is why in particular we need God's revelation in the person that is Jesus Christ. He alone is intellectually true and honest and not blinded by spiritual corruption in the way that others are. Think also about this longing for popularity that we've been discussing and approval. And how that corrupted the words of the scribes and it meant that their opinions were no longer trustworthy. That place that I was just talking to you about in John chapter 6 where the great crowd was around Jesus. This is what he was saying to them on that day. He was saying, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And the Jews who were gathered around him and who otherwise might have become a great... Um, a great crowd of admirers say this. They say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're confused by his words. They're confused. They, they think he's advocating cannibalism and they begin to abandon him and walk away from him. And what is remarkable to me in this passage is this, that Jesus shows us what a true prophet looks like. He shows us what a true truth speaker looks like, that he does not give concern to whether his views are, are popular or not, whether they'll be accepted or not. He speaks the truth according to his conscience, regardless of the consequences. And this is the pattern that we see in Christ's life again and again. In fact, it was one of the very purposes for which he came. In the great prophecy in Isaiah 53, which describes the coming of the Messiah, it says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. What Isaiah is showing us is that the fact that Jesus is rejected, the fact that he's despised, the fact that he's scorned, the fact that people deride him and mock him and walk away from him is one of the seals of his authenticity. If Jesus had just walked through life and, and said nothing that offended people, he, would not have, he might have had a temporary following, but his movement would have fizzled out and died out because people would have seen him as a charlatan. Rightly, they would have seen him as someone who was not willing to speak the truth of God. The, the stamp of authenticity on the ministry of Jesus is that he does not give concern to the glory that comes from man. He's only interested in the glory that comes from God. So not only is he intellectually honest and able to see spiritually, but also he's not corrupted by the love of the praise of man. And the final thing I can say about him, which marks him out, is that whereas these men were corrupted by the privileges that they enjoyed because of their career, essentially, because of their great salaries and the honor that they got in the synagogue and, the, and so on, Jesus did not live for these privileges in his ministry. In fact, the very opposite is true. There were moments, of course, when Jesus enjoyed um, a good meal in someone's house. Or, and there was certainly the case that he was, um, he was supported by wealthy benefactors so that he would have clothes on his back and food on his table. But the life of Christ was actually more, more uh, marked by the fact that he, was, he lived in poverty and homelessness. There's a one occasion where a scribe comes to him and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And perhaps in the back of his mind, Jesus has this, this picture and this knowledge of the scribes that they enjoy the good life. And so he knows that this calling cannot possibly be sincere, that this man won't really pay the price to follow Jesus. And Jesus describes his own lifestyle. He says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
He said, even the animals have homes. I don't have a home. I wander about homeless from place to place because of my calling to be a prophet and a preacher of truth. And it seems to me that this is one of the great reasons why we can trust the Lord Jesus Christ above all teachers and above all um, people is this fact that he didn't come just to take. He didn't come just to absorb the blessings and bounties and to rely upon others so that he could enrich himself and grow um, fat and corrupted through the wealth that this world offers. But on the contrary, he tells us in Mark 10 that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Which points us to the fact that the ultimate marker that Jesus Christ is somebody to be trusted, somebody reliable, somebody who was free from these corruptions was the fact that he came to give himself upon the cross for us. I look at him and I think he's not like other men who at the end of the day when all said and done are only interested in their own selfish interests and will protect themselves at all costs. Jesus isn't that man. Jesus was willing to bear the brunt of rejection and scorn and he was willing ultimately to die in our place, which is why I believe that we should assign him the, the honourable place is the only person who we can truly trust completely, whose words are perfect and pure. I want to ask you as I close, are you somebody who is in pursuit of truth in this life? The world has a new opinion every day, it seems, and new ideas which are fashionable in the moment and Many of them are hostile and opposed to the Christian faith. And if you constantly have your ear to the ground to what's going on in culture, it can trouble you in your heart. It can trouble you if you are, um, if you are somebody who's, who's on a genuine spiritual journey, questioning whether you want to follow Jesus or not, and troubled by the problem of, of becoming weird if you were to become a Christian. And this troubles all of us who are already Christians. None of us are beyond this. We all experience doubt in our heart of hearts at moments where we think, how, how is it that I believe this faith and the world believes all these other things which are directly opposed? How can I possibly hold on to these ideas which are so ancient, which are you know, regarded as so bigoted? And it can be a troubling problem for us. But what Jesus is showing us here is that the only way we can really know what truth is and the only way where we can have that settled peace in our conscience where all doubts begin to fade away and evaporate like the morning fog, the only way that you can have that kind of clarity is when you look directly at Jesus Christ. When you make Him your Lord and when you regard Him as the sole true revelation of God and the sole true arbiter of, of what is true and what is wrong. I was reading this morning the story in John chapter 4, which just beautifully illustrated this, and I want to close here. It's that occasion when Jesus has that extraordinary conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, and I won't recount the story, but she comes to believe that he is someone special, a prophet of God, and she goes back to her village and tells all the villagers about Jesus, and they're, they're intrigued. And they come and listen to him. They come and listen to what he has to say. And all of the village immediately become believers in Jesus. And this is what they say. They turn to her, this woman. They say, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's important that you hear the testimony of others. 
But ultimately, that's not enough. It can't, you can't just rely on the opinions of other people. You have to be like these people who say, we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. That's the description of a Christian. You hear, you've heard the voice of Jesus for yourself. You've heard the voice of Jesus by his spirit in your, in your inner being. When you've read the scriptures, when you've heard the gospel and it has the witness of truth to you and you know even if everything else in this world was, was held up as, as uncertain and open to questions, you know that there's one thing that cannot be moved, that cannot be shaken in your heart of hearts. It is the reality of who Christ is and that he is the saviour of the world. That's what it means to be a Christian. And I want to encourage you that that is not insanity. That it is not craziness, that it's not lunacy, and it's not a kind of wrong type of radicalism that, that means that you should be subject to mockery. No, no, no. This is, this is the only sanity that there is in this world. It's what it means to be in the light, to believe in Jesus, and to recognize that when all other voices fail, as the scribes had failed, and as the cultural influences in our day have failed, when all other voices should be questioned, Jesus is the one voice that we can listen to, the one voice that we can be certain about, the voice which calms our fears and casts away doubts. And I want to pray that for you right now. Like all of us, I know what doubt feels like. I go through seasons from time to time where doubts begin to emerge, like, like mushrooms cropping up uh, and just out of nowhere, you know, in your heart. And you, you think, where did that come from? I always seek to come back to Jesus when I'm going through those moments, those experiences in my heart. And I ask myself the same questions. Is he, is he who he said he is? Did he die for my sins? Did he rise from the dead? Am I sure of this? Does he speak truth? And every time my heart says, yes, 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 yes. This is how the Holy Spirit witnesses to you that Christ is who he said he is. Come back to Jesus now. Let's pray together. Jesus, we praise you that yours is the voice that stills and calms our fears. That when other, all other voices are to be questioned, are to be weighed, are to be held up and, and probed and, and, and that we're meant to exercise a certain amount of scepticism about what this world says and believes. Your voice is pure. Your voice is true. You were the prophet who came into the world. You were the son of God who came to reveal the Father. Lord, I want to pray for our precious church. I want to pray for those who are being afflicted by doubt and uncertainty about you and about the things they believe. I pray, Lord, that your voice will come and just blow away the clouds now. I pray, Lord, that they'll recognize the lies of the enemy and the fact that the thing, the people that they were listening to should not be listened to, that we need to listen to you. I ask you, Lord, for those who've been on a spiritual journey, who are listening today, who are thinking and weighing and deciding about whether they want to be followers of Jesus. I pray that they will see the uniqueness of your son today. And how when all other voices must be doubted, his alone is the voice that should be trusted. 
pray for this clarity. I pray for this peace. I pray for this certainty. And I pray for it in your precious name. Amen.